Thank you, Walt, uh, and our musicians for filling our heart with the praise of the Lord. Good morning, Grace. Uh, I'm Rob Price. Uh, my wife, Mindy, and I have been members here at Grace for a good long while. It's a privilege to be with you all this morning. Uh, Christmas was uh, a couple months ago now. It feels like forever. Everyone finished with their thank you letters? <laughs> Still working on a few? <laughs> This past Christmas, I totally fumbled a thank you letter. Um, a week went by, and I still hadn't written the thing. And Mindy, bless her, she reminded me a couple times very politely, no. Another week goes by. Uh, sorry, dear, uh, too busy polishing my Philistine etiquette. <laughs> it was like three weeks later before I got the thing in the mail. Now, my aunt and my uncle, uh, the long-waiting recipients of said thank you letter, they're wonderful Hugely generous, loads of fun. We love them. They'd actually called my mom and asked, is Robbie mad at us? <laughs> I'm still Robbie to them. Um, no, not mad, just a dork. I mean, no, my mom didn't say that to them. That's my objective self-assessment. They had sent us all wonderful gifts, and they were, we were, and we are, grateful. But gratitude is something not only to be felt, but also to be written promptly. <laughs> So this year, Grace has been preaching through Paul's thank you letter to the Philippians. Paul's in prison in Rome. Uh, the church in Philippi, which Paul himself had founded some 10 years before this, they heard about Paul's situation. And they sent one of their leaders, a guy named Epaphroditus, to carry a gift of money and personal care and encouragement. And Paul's now sending Epaphroditus back to the church in Philippi, and he sends him with this magnificent thank you letter the letter to the Philippians. The letter to the Philippians is warm, personal, exuberant, triumphant, and irrepressibly joyful. It's a gospel letter. It's a living like Jesus letter. Despite weakness, chains, and discouragement, it's strength and confidence and peace. So after thanks and greetings and all the news that's fit to print, that's chapter one, Paul turns in chapter two, where we pick up today, he turns to exhortation and he turns to Jesus. Chapter two, verses one to 11, is the living like Jesus center of the whole letter. Paul's got lots more to say later that we get to cover in weeks ahead, shining like lights, imitating others, righteousness by faith, pressing on toward the goal, rejoicing in the Lord, but it's all grounded here in Jesus. Everything Paul wants to say to the Philippians, it all radiates out from what he says here about Jesus. So this morning, we will be staring at the sun We'll fix our gaze on this living like Jesus center of Paul's thank you letter to the Philippians. And what we'll see is that the heart of God the Father for us, what God the Father wants for us more than anything else is for us to reflect the beauty of his most glorious son. So before we begin, would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your spirit and the gift of your word. We thank you for the example of your son, humble 
and joyful in his suffering service. Father, would you help us by your Spirit who gives love, joy, and peace to become ever more like your Son, in whose all-conquering name we pray. Amen. So Philippians 2, verses 1 to 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men." And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. And Lord, haste the day. What a magnificent passage. Paul yearns for these dear brothers and sisters to be unified. And it's the humility of Jesus that will achieve it. Clearly, two main parts to this passage. Right? Verses one through four are Paul's call to unity. Guys, don't be selfish. Agree with one another. Love one another. Serve one another. And then, verses five to 11, they tell us how this unity can happen through the example of the breathtaking beauty of the humility of Jesus and the exaltation and glory that follow. So this morning, I'd like to mostly just walk straight through this passage. We'll take the verses a few at a time. So first, the call to unity, and then the emptying and exaltation of Jesus. And as you can see, at the close of service, we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper. Uh, Paul has something important to say. Of course, everything the Bible says is important because what the Bible says, God says. And God doesn't say anything silly or irrelevant. Still, some important things are more important than other important things. Here's how you tell. Paul takes something that there's lots of, and then he says, guys, if there's even a teensy little bit of it, I want you to do this one thing. And we're supposed to think, teensy little bit? Oh gosh, there's tons of that stuff. Of course we'll do this one thing. But Paul doesn't stop with one teensy little bit argument, and he strings together a whole series of them. And we're supposed to think with, e with more conviction each time, well, yes and amen, Paul, we're there, we'll do it. Just tell us, what is this one thing you're calling us to do? When Paul gives us 
a whole series of overwhelming reasons to do some one thing, we know that one thing is important. If I said to our daughter Anna, dearest Anna, if, as mom and I have raised you, there has been any love for Jesus, any laughter and feasting, any perseverance through trial, any deep conversations or joyful songs, then set my heart at peace by doing this one thing. (laughs) What comes next? Anna, remember to throw the dark load in the dryer. (laughs) Hardly, right? That's like calling in the Marines to stop a jaywalker. If you have to talk like that to get a few chores done, you have obedience issues. (laughs) And be it said, Anna is as cheerfully compliant as they come. Right, well, with a big setup like that, what comes next has to be something really important on the order of take care of your mother when I die. Right? So, Paul says, verse 1, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Man, there's been tons of these things, right? The good news of salvation in Christ, when the Philippians first heard this from Paul, their hearts were full to bursting. The love they had experienced, primarily the love of God, but also the love from Paul and from each other that God's love had inspired. They had never known its like. Filled with the Spirit, they enjoyed a fellowship with Christ and with each other, more intimate and more secure even than that of their biological families. The affection and sympathy they shared with Paul had overflowed into costly mutual service. Paul invokes this great wealth of blessings. In light of all this, Paul says, make my joy, joy which is already full, make my joy complete. And who wouldn't want to please a spiritual father like Paul? So, What's the ask? What's the one thing Paul asks them to do? Well, in about eight different ways, Paul asks them to be one. Paul asks them to be unified. How does he ask them? This is verses two through four. Let me count the ways. (laughs) Complete my joy, he says, by one, being of the same mind. Two, having the same love. Three, being in full accord. And four, of one mind. Five, kind of negatively, do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit. But six, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Seven, kind of negatively, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but eight, also to the interests of others. Paul really wants harmony, agreement, consensus, everybody on board. What Paul wants is for each person in the congregation to be oriented toward the good of the whole. Now, here's a word for us, Grace. If after Paul's huge setup, if after all that his exhortation feels a little anticlimactic, it's probably because we've enjoyed so much unity here at Grace. 
we probably tend to undervalue church unity until we've been through a church split. We're probably not inclined to pursue the good of the whole congregation with real urgency until we've seen the havoc that selfish ambition can wreak. You see, Paul's not asking us here to change a load of laundry. He's talking about matters of church life and church death. The way to take down any community is to foster internal division. Ancient wisdom in the art of war from Homer to Black Panther. A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. By the grace of God and by the prayers and sweat of our elders and of many others, we have known the blessings of sharing the same love and the same purpose. But we are not invulnerable, as Randy pointed out last week. And there is a still more intimate unity than we have yet experienced. So, Grace, let's lean in. This is the one church community most of us have got. Let's make it work. More than that, let's make it flourish. Wherever we're involved here at Grace, whatever ministries we're part of in whatever way, let's take every opportunity to bless our brothers and sisters here at Grace. This is not a what will I get approach to the Christian life. It's what can I give. Randy said last week, this is not me Christianity. There is no such thing. Right? This is we Christianity. Right? We need a choir, not a bunch of soloists. We need a team, not a bunch of show-offs. Let's lean in. On the other hand, let's not pull away. Did you know that God made the church to be annoying? <laughs> he did. God knew what would happen when he took a bunch of prickly sinners and stuffed them all together under the same roof. (laughs) Of course, God's intention, his goal is not to prickle us, his goal is not to annoy us, but to exercise our humility, right? To help us see our own sins and repent of them. To see our own weaknesses and our deep need for each other. And to supply us with grace through the brothers and sisters all around us. So, friends, when you find the church annoying, don't reach for selfish ambition and conceit. Don't drift away. Here a week, gone a week, so many other important engagements. No, grace needs you, and you need grace. Don't snipe at the church on social media. Don't distance yourself emotionally from the church by complaining about it. Grace is not above criticism. But let's not go venting it to anyone who will listen. Where you have concerns, talk to your grace group, pray with the prayer team, meet up with one of the elders. There is not a domineering man among them, I promise you. So, lean in to the common good. Don't pull away into selfish conceit. Work for the unity of this local congregation. And in doing this, we will make the joy of our elders complete. Our pursuit of unity is an urgent task, but it faces a major obstacle. What sin does, the way sin distorts how we think about other people, 
And this is where the call to humility comes in. Verse three, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Consider others more important than yourselves. By implication, consider yourself less important than other people. (laughs) What? In American culture, that's heresy. Considering other people more important? In a culture of self-glorification, to think less of yourself is self-degradation. We'd classify it as emotional self-harm. And then for one person to tell others to think less of themselves, that's outright oppression. Nietzsche called it a slave morality. It's how masters want their slaves to think. It's how traffickers want their victims to think. American culture can make Paul's call to humility sound really offensive. Or at the very least, impractical. Try that in a job interview. (laughs) Yes, I would bring several strengths to this position, though I'm not as significant as the other candidates. (laughs) File that application in the round bin. And then there's our own pride on top of that. And of course, this is some of what Paul's trying to correct. So it's kind of like this. In our pride, we see others as less significant. That's our sin. But in humility, we see others as more significant. That's Paul's prescription. So if our proud eyes look out through humble glasses, hopefully we'll see 2020 again, right? We'll see others as more significant, as more important. The problem is they aren't. Other people are not more significant than we are. Christianity has no caste system. In Christianity, we confess a priesthood of all believers. We are all saints, all children of God, all saved by grace so that no one can boast. We are all just as much in the image of God as Jan Buck or Mary Stransky. Our janitors and their thankless tasks can be just as pleasing to God as Walt Hera in a Christmas concert. Now, we do have elders with authority over us and responsibility for us. But when it comes to our access to God, our value in his sight, our capacity to use our spiritual gifts to minister God's grace to others, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. Amen? We are all equally significant before the Lord. So, what if you and I are divided about some aspect of our church life together? Why should you be humble and treat me as more significant when I'm not? Why should I be humble and treat you as more significant when you're not? You see, our spiritual equality can become an obstacle to mutual deference and unity. So to get us past this obstacle, Paul turns our attention to the humility of Jesus. Verses five to 11, one of the most famous Jesus passages in the Bible. Paul's language here takes on such solemnity and poetic grandeur that scholars wonder if he's quoting lyrics of an early Christian hymn about Jesus. In the space of a few verses, Paul touches on most of the biggest doctrines in the Bible. Trinity, incarnation, 
crucifixion, resurrection and ascension, and he looks ahead to the universal acclamation of Jesus at the final judgment. Through all the centuries, Christian readers have found here in Philippians 2 one of the most concise and beautiful accounts in all of Scripture of the person and work of Jesus. What Paul needs is a way to convince us equals to treat each other as more important than ourselves. Paul's telling equals to be humble. So he appeals to the relationship between Jesus and the Father. If you and I are gonna treat each other with humility, verse five, we will have to have the mind of Jesus. That is, the attitude of Jesus, the mindset of Jesus. How did Jesus consider himself? Verses six and seven. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is extraordinary. Do you hear what Paul is saying? Jesus was in the form of God. Your translation may read, in very nature God. What's this mean? Well, Paul explains it right here. It means that Jesus had equality with God. The form of God, having the form of God, means being equal with God. Now, we are Christians, right? We know that Jesus is God, but think about what this means. When we say that Jesus is God, we mean that he is just as God as the Father is God. So, is God the Father Almighty? So is the Son. The Son is just as Almighty as the Father. In fact, the Son shares the same Almightiness as the Father. Does God the Father know all things? So does the Son. The Son is just as all-knowing, just as omniscient as the Father. In fact, the Son shares the same knowledge as the Father. Does the Father have life in himself? So he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. The Son is just as alive as the Father with the same life that the Father lives. When the Bible says that Jesus is God, it means it. It means it radically absolutely, totally. Right? Jesus is not mostly God, but fully God. And so then, what was going on in the mind of the Son of God? How was he thinking? He did not count equality with God the Father a thing to be grasped. The Son did not cling to his position and his prestige. He did not insist on his own rights. Though equal with the Father, he considered the Father more significant than himself. And then what did the Son of God do? He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. It's important to note here that the Father doesn't empty him, he empties himself. He does this voluntarily. And then what is this emptying? Of what? does he empty himself? Does he empty himself of his divinity? 
Well, think about it. Can God quit being God? Can God change into something other than God? <laughs> Certainly not. Right? He says, I, the Lord, do not change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And, I mean, look, it, Paul explains it right here, right in this verse, exactly what he means by emptying. The son empties himself, how? By taking. Do you see that? The son empties himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The emptying is the incarnation. When the son empties himself, he does not cease to be God, he starts to be man. He remains what he was, he takes on what he was not. So the son, in the form of God, has equality with God, he's fully God, he takes the form of a servant, he takes equality with man. The son is born not mostly human, but fully human. He became like his brothers and sisters in every respect. Jesus bears the form of God and the form of a servant. In these few elegant lines, Paul gives us one of the clearest glimpses, so brief but so brilliant, into who Jesus is as fully God and fully man. Now, it took the church some centuries to reach precision in its understanding and consensus in its confession, but the realities are all right here in this breathtaking description of Jesus. That Jesus was and remains fully God, and that he became also fully man. This not only helps us make sense of the wild variety of things the Bible says about Jesus, but this is also what makes the incarnation so crazy. If the Son doesn't start from the very heights of divinity, he doesn't have very far to come down. Oh, but if the Creator himself becomes creature, oh, then let all mortal flesh keep silence and with fear and trembling stand. Christ, our God, to earth descendeth, our full homage to demand. Christ, our God, now become man. Think about what this emptying means. In perfect knowledge of all things, God the Son, by whom all things were created, he takes ignorance to himself. He has to ask about Lazarus, where have you laid him? The eternal Son takes on the limits of time. In his divine eternity, he says, before Abraham was, I am. And in the rush of created time, he says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. The Almighty Son takes to himself weakness. The Son doesn't empty himself of power so that he can become weak. No, even as he upholds the universe by the word of his power, he takes weakness to himself. That's why in divine power he can rebuke the wind and the sea, peace, be still. And in human weakness, he can also be wearied from his journey and have to ask, please give me a drink of water. And this is but the first stage of the journey 
from the glory of the blessed Trinity to the manger in Bethlehem. Our Lord Jesus Christ, he laid aside his majesty. He concealed his splendor. The radiance of the glory of God went dark and the word became flesh. And now, the eternal Son of God, who emptied himself by becoming incarnate, now humbles himself still further. The praise of angels is despised and rejected by men. The Christ, the Son of the living God, the Son who has life in himself, who is the life, the immortal dies that we might live. Friends, that is a humility we cannot fathom. Amen? That is a lowliness so deep we cannot see bottom. That is a condescension from heights we cannot reach. That is a love more powerful than death. So do you see what Paul has done for the Philippians here? He's summoning these spiritual equals to treat each other as betters when they're not. He's calling citizens of a spiritual democracy to treat others like royalty when they're not. If they're divided about some aspect of church life, Paul knows that there is no other way to preserve unity. So he sets before them the beauty of the humility of Jesus. Jesus did not cling to his equality with the Father, and neither should we insist on our spiritual equality with each other. Jesus emptied himself so we should consider others more significant than ourselves. When Paul says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves, he's saying, display the beauty of Jesus' own humility. He's saying, imitate Jesus. So why humility? To reflect the beauty of Jesus. To serve the common good and the unity of a local congregation to complete the joy of our elders. But we're still afraid to empty ourselves, aren't we? If I start considering everyone else as more important, will they all start considering me as less important? We're afraid that if we empty ourselves, sure, wonderful things may happen for other people, but what if we ourselves are never full again? If we humble ourselves and consider others more significant, Will we always be last and lowest? Humility is dangerous. What could justify the risk? Well, Paul's not done telling the story of Jesus, and what, has, what Paul has yet to say about Jesus is vital encouragement for us. Because Jesus, the Son of God, emptied himself in the incarnation and humbled himself to the point of crucifixion, this is verses 9 through 11, therefore, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus was not only emptied but also exalted. And friends, we too will be not only emptied, but also exalted. So what was it 
that enabled Jesus to face the risk of humility. Jesus was the Son of God and he knew it. He was and knew himself to be fully and securely the Son of God. If Jesus wasn't God, his mission might have ended in failure. That's why Satan tries to make him doubt his identity. If you are the Son of God, he says. If Jesus wasn't God, he might have given up or given in. Only the eternal Son could have faced in confidence the human condition and the stratagems of Satan, the hardness of Jerusalem and the wrath of God. But as the eternal Son, he empties himself in the certainty of triumph. He humbles himself with the guarantee of exaltation. Secure in his identity, he can face down the risk of humility. And the same is true of us. We have to know who we are. And Satan will try to get us to doubt. You see, if we're not secure and sure of our identity as sons and daughters of God, we will fear humility, right? We'll be terrified that our missions of humility might end in failure. Our sacrifice for the good of the church, we might think, will only be for us loss. But Paul has already assured us that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. On the day of Jesus' final triumph, the Father himself will bring to completion the work he has begun in us. Our identity as sons and daughters of God, that will be vindicated. We will not always be last and least and lowest. For sons and daughters of God, exaltation awaits. That's the security that enables risk. That's the fullness that empowers emptying. And so, Grace, we don't need to fear. God's call to us to humility today is not ultimately a call to loss or harm. Rather, it is a call to ultimate exaltation. What God is calling us to today is to pursue urgently the unity of this local congregation, even at the risk of humility, in the confidence that the emptied will be exalted to the glory of God the Father. We know that God opposes the proud, but praise his name, he gives grace to the humble. Amen. The humble obedience of Jesus, even to the point of death on a cross, this is what we remember when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is for those who know Jesus as Lord. It's for Christians. It's for those of us who accept his death in our place for our many sins that we might receive forgiveness and everlasting life. If you're not a Christian, the Lord's Supper is not for you but the Lord himself is. Come to me, he says, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Servers, if you would please come forward. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God and Son of Man, we praise you for your humble obedience to the Father 
and forgiving your body and your blood for us. As we remember now your crucifixion, would you, by your Spirit, assure us of our identity as sons and daughters of the Father? Fill us with the confidence to risk humility with each other. And so would you in this way protect and strengthen the unity of this local congregation and of your one church throughout the world? We ask this in your name. Amen.